Hey everyone, this week, before we get started, we'd like to thank Harry from Richmond, Virginia for his contribution. He's been a longtime follower and says he spreads the message of moral injury to anyone who will listen. Thank you for that, Harry. We appreciate you. Hi, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Lawton Robert Burns, MBA, is the James Jujin Kim Professor, Professor of Healthcare Management, and a Professor of Management at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. He teaches courses on healthcare strategy, strategic change, strategic implementation, organization and management, managed care, and integrated delivery networks, and is the co-author with David Dranov at the Kellogg School of Management of Big Med, Mega Providers in the High Cost of Healthcare in America. Let's have a listen. Rob Burns, we are so glad to have you here. I've been eagerly awaiting this podcast for weeks. I read your book probably two months ago, and I think it was after the first three pages that I thought, okay, we need to talk to him. (laughs) Everybody needs to have this conversation, and pretty much I think I've recommended it to about two dozen people since then. So thank you for writing Big Med Mega providers and the high cost of healthcare in America. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. So, how did you get interested in the topic of mega providers and what are they? Well, uh, there's no one definition, but it's basically large provider systems. They can be horizontally integrated in terms of lots of hospitals in a chain, they can also be vertically integrated with. Um, uh, pre-hospital and post-hospital care sites bolted on to them. That's what we call vertical integration. Or more typically, they can be both. So they're both horizontally and vertically integrated. And um, these things have been around for a while, but they really started in earnest in the late 1960s. They picked up steam in the 70s and the 80s, and then everybody went uh, hog wild in the 1990s with these things to prepare for the Clinton health plan and the reforms it envisioned. Um, But I remember teaching on this material back in the uh, early 1980s when I first started my teaching career. I mean, we had to take account of these large hospital systems there. Back then, they were led by the for-profit hospital systems. So HCA, Hospital Corporation of America, that was one of the first. There were a few others. And then the nonprofit hospitals got the bug, started to form systems. And we've been off and running ever since. So this is this is something that's been going on for over 40 years. So I, I got deeply familiar with these, writing if I betray these words. And one of the first systems that I became familiar with was HMA, Health Management Associates. Mm-hmm. They were for-profit. I also dove deep into several of the large nonprofits. So really aware of those. And, you know, I, I think we all want to think that healthcare is sort of a benevolent good, right? That these systems are getting bigger, mostly to help patients, to make sure that they have enough leverage, et cetera. But healthcare now makes up almost a sixth of the economy, right? And so it's an attractive sector for investors to come into. It's been flooded with a lot of 
big private equity money. And I found that a lot of your figures, really shocking, but the one that hit me the hardest was when you said that Northwestern in Chicago has annual revenues of $5 billion. And by the way, there are lots of health systems that are bigger than that. On par with finance giant Goldman Sachs or Tiffany, and equivalent to Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC combined. So that leads me to the question of what are the implications for clinicians and patients in systems that are that massive? Uh, by the way, let me up, just update some of those statistics for you. Um, just this uh, past few months, a, another hospital system merger has gone through Advocate Aurora Healthcare System, based in uh, Illinois and Wisconsin, has merged with Atrium Health, which is down in the Carolinas and a couple other southeastern states. That's a $27 billion enterprise. I mean, these things are just getting bigger and bigger, and they're only the sixth largest. So that means right. there are five systems even bigger than that. And UPMC in our own state is $23 billion, well, was $23 billion several years ago. And growing. Correct. <laughs> So what does all this mean? Well, you know, one of the first papers I wrote when I was an assistant professor was the transformation of the American hospital from community institution to corporate enterprise. I think that's the title. But it basically, these used to be locally organized, independent, freestanding facilities that were developed by the community, sponsored by the community, organized to provide care for the community. And now what they've become is these big statewide, multi-statewide, in a handful of cases, national hospital chains. And so what it means is that the, the, the system itself is more and more removed from the local community where it started and the individual that it's treating. And basically, you're just what you, the patient, are one small part of a huge machine. So I'm going to ask a question that may be obvious to some people or for some of us who work in healthcare systems, maybe not so obvious, which is what is the data to support consolidation? And it, based on what data there is or not, why is it happening? Well, it, 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 we ought to be clear on what you mean by supporting consolidation. You mean to what data are there to suggest that it has benefits to the public? Yes. Okay. Uh, there there is some, but it's not as much as you would like to see. Okay, I think on the positive side of the ledger, when these systems form mergers, they become bigger and slightly more stable, so they're less likely to go bankrupt. Um, so they're not going to go out of business. You know, there's some strength in uh, size and numbers. Uh, secondly, they because they're bigger and more stable, they can access the uh, tax-exempt debt market and get higher ratings from Moody's and Standard & Poor's and therefore borrow money at lower rates so they have lower cost capital uh, with which to build and expand. And there are data that suggests that, you know, once these systems start forming, they invest in some of the facilities they acquire, which may help them stay alive and keep them in business. Now, that's all on the positive side, but we st we quickly start going downhill after that. And so <laughs> if you're asking about cost and quality, uh, yeah. there aren't many benefits. In fact, costs go up, prices go up, spending goes up. And then quality either stays the same or goes down. 
And so what we have is a situation of what we might refer to as negative value. You know, value is defined as quality over cost. And so what you'd like to see is quality go up and cost go down. Or, or at least cost be the same. In fact, what we have here is just the reverse. We have cost going up and quality either staying the same or going down. So, you know, to our mind, it's kind of an ugly picture in terms of the benefits to the average citizen. Now, the reason why your audience needs to know this and ought to be alarmed by it is because at the end of the day, you and myself and Simon and everybody else who's listening to this, we pay for every single dollar of health care. It's just that we finance it in such interesting, intricate, Byzantine ways that nobody knows that. But we're paying for every single dollar of health care. So as these systems get bigger and spend more money, we're footing the bill. Yeah. And I found one of the quotes in your book, interesting, or one of the pieces, what you said was, as a strategy to reduce healthcare spending, integration has been a complete failure. Much of the blame fell squarely on healthcare executives who bought into the scale and scope economies without any evidence that these economies existed. So, in other words, the story is that it will work, and yet, in reality, it hasn't panned out. So, how do these ideas come about? if they're not driven by evidence-based practices? Well, you know, economies of scale and economies of scope underlie the strategies of horizontal and vertical integration. Now, horizontal and vertical integration started in industry a long time ago, and they may or may not have uh, been manifest there. But then people in healthcare, you know, we're a little slow on the uptake, you know, we said, hey, maybe we ought to try some of that stuff over here. Maybe that will cure our ills. And hey, look what they say over here in corporate world, economies of scale, economies of scope. Sure sounds good. You know, it doesn't matter that nobody really understands what they mean. I have a three-hour lecture in my Wharton class to explain what these critters are to my students just so they don't make the same mistake. But if you don't understand what they are, and it's like a, and it's also a siren song to these executives, hey, you know, if I just say the magic words, economies of scale and economies of scope, I got political cover for building a bigger and bigger system, and I'll sell it to the public and to the regulators and to everybody else as here's something that's going to make healthcare cheaper. And if it's cheaper, then I can offer it at lower cost, and that means the public will pay less for it. So that's that's the rationale. Now, why does this stuff keep happening? And the evidence is there aren't any economies of scale or scope uh, in these hospital systems, at least after you reach a certain small level. Um, so why does this stuff keep happening? Well, it could be one of two reasons or maybe both. One is the executives don't know the research. And I wouldn't blame them for that because, you know, our, our research findings are published in all these rather arcane economics journals, which I'm not an economist, but, you know, I am a trained researcher. I even have trouble parsing through some of the stuff my economics colleagues uh, write, but I understand it. So either those executives haven't read the literature and don't know, or more likely they've heard enough you know, because we've been talking about this for decades, they choose to ignore it. And it, it's, it's politically convenient for them to ignore it because, you know, 
the, you know, the average citizen, you know, in the country who's paying for all this doesn't know about economies of scale and economies of scope. I mean, it takes a, a trained mind and a trained eye to look for all this stuff. Uh, and so, you know, the public is unsuspecting. So that's why it's taking place. But, you know, the, you know, everybody likes to use these rationales as the cover. You know, it's like the health, as I call it in class, the Helen of Troy of uh, healthcare strategy. It's, you know, the, uh, the face that launched a thousand ships. It's the rationale that launched a thousand mergers. Where is this heading, Rob? Where, um, if you were to predict where we're going to be 10 years, 15, yeah. 20 years from now. Oh, God. Uh, is that a disturbing thought? Yes. <laughs> uh, it's, it's continuing. Uh, my, my, so I wrote this book, Big Med, with one economics colleague, David Dranoff, who's at the Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern. I've just finished another paper, which is being published later this year by Millbank Quarterly. And I've written it with another of my economics colleagues, Mark Pauley, who's arguably one of the top health economists in the world. He's here at the Wharton School in my department. So we've written a follow-up piece to Big Med. It's called Big Med Spread. So it kind of gives you an idea of where we're heading. You know, this thing is just spreading. The tentacles are spreading out across the country. And so what Big Med is really writing about our hospitals coalescing and combining and integrating in local markets or states, like, as you mentioned, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, but now it's getting worse. And now the hospital systems are forming across state lines and sometimes in non-contiguous states. And we have plenty of examples like that. So I already mentioned the uh, the Advocate Aurora Atrium merger. Then you have the um, Intermountain uh SCL merger out west. You have the Fairview hospitals with Sanford Health merger. That's in Minnesota and North Dakota. And there are lots of examples like this. So that what's happening is these, these big med enterprises are merging with other big med enterprises to become really big med enterprises. And they're operating in totally different geographies of the country. And so, you know... <laughs> I try to get my students to you know, ask the simple question, WTF, like, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, and so I make them think through some of these things and I force them to read what the stock market and investment analysts have written about these things, you know, and they pile on the, the grandiose verbiage of economies of scale and economies of scale and lots of different areas. And I force my students to deconstruct it and to look for evidence. Is this really true? Is what I just heard really true? And that, by the def and that, by the way, is the definition of critical thinking. Asking yourself, is what I just heard really true? And so I spend an entire semester with my undergraduates at the Wharton School teaching them how to do that. I think that's so important to think about. We've heard these stories, but even though we've heard them for decades, are they true? We do that in medicine all the time. We've been treating cardiac disease this way, but is that really the right way? Right. Cancer treatment is constantly evolving because of asking those sorts of questions. And yet, I don't know how much we do that about the systems that are put in place to deliver care. Yeah, well, what you're talking about is evidence-based medicine. Right. And, you know, the, you know, and the evidence base in medicine is at least based partially on randomized controlled trials and 
peer-reviewed evidence in the top scientific journals like JAMA and the New England Journal, and there and replications of studies. And there we have a little bit more confidence, but only 20% of, of medicine is roughly evidence-based like that. The rest is art. And when you get to management, hardly any of it's evidence-based. So we call it evidence-based management. And there's not a lot of evidence-based for some of this management. And the, to the degree there is any evidence-based, it's a small percentage. And the rest, in my mind, is what I call alchemy, not art. Yeah, that's fair. So in the book, there are a few places where fairly you don't absolve physicians from being involved in healthcare's evolution. Can you explain the roles that physicians have played that got us here and then where you see physicians now? Because I think that's different. Right. Well, you know, in the older days when hospitals were just freestanding community institutions, they had a voluntary medical staff. Nobody was employed. The doctors had their community practices. They came and went to see their patients in the hospital, but they retreated back to their community offices where they spent the bulk of their time treating outpatients and ambulatory patients, things like that. Now, as back then, the medical staff had a lot more control over what that hospital did. And the medical staff had a much easier time of serving as a check and a balance to the people in the C-suite. And back then, we didn't even call it the C-suite. They were just administrators and assistant administrators. You know, and the medical staff could get the administrator fired once they just complained to the board of trustees. Those were the old days. Nowadays, with these big mega systems, the physicians in any one given hospital, their voice has been diluted. And so they're just one of many medical staffs. And so to to bring off some sort of change in the C-suite, we're now we're calling them, um, you know, chief executive officers and chief operating officers rather than administrators and assistant administrators. You'd have to get all of the medical staffs or a large number of the medical staffs across all those institutions that are now part of the system to come to agreement that, hey, we need a change at the top. And so their voice has been diluted. That's one thing. Second off, Physicians will, will tell you, you know, they're dwarfed in size by the size of these mega systems. You know, one individual physician versus a mega system that's multi-billions of dollars with a board of directors and, you know, operations in multiple parts of the city, state, country. I mean, the physicians, are, you know, probably feel, you know, challenged by, you know, what kind of voice do I have? And odds are they probably don't have as much as they used to. And so they can't serve as the same countervailing force or check and balance that they used to. Now, in addition to that, and I don't want to emphasize this too much, but there's probably a little truth to it, is that a growing number of physicians are now employed by these hospital systems. You know, and I remember when the, uh, if you're here in Pennsylvania, you probably remember the uh, AHERF bankruptcy in 1998, the Allegheny Health Education and Research Foundation. They went bankrupt in 1998 because they spread from a single hospital in Pittsburgh, Allegheny General Hospital, to a 14 or 15 hospital system, both in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh. And I remember interviewing physicians back then, and I said, you know, why didn't any of the physicians speak up? Because, you know, they spotted some things going on. And one doctor told me, hey, man, as long as the checks were getting cashed, we didn't care. 
But what happens is Allegheny, they, they stopped cashing the checks because they ran out of money. But, you know, maybe some of these physicians are, I don't want to use the word compromise. That's probably too strong of a word. But maybe they're, you know, they've gotten a little more complacent because basically now they're being paid on salary rather than just, you know, 100% productivity. You know, eat what you kill, see all your patients. And so they may have some guaranteed compensation in there. But I wouldn't put much of the blame for this at the feet of the physicians. Now, some physicians may have sat by and let this happen. Uh, and I'm, I'm out there actively trying to encourage doctors to realize that they are the single most important asset we have in the healthcare system. Just think of it. They, they've gone through much more training than all of us have. They know a whole lot more that is literally life and death. They're the smartest people in the healthcare system, and the nurses are right behind them. Now, these are the smartest people, but they're down at the, you know, we call the, uh, the, uh, the front line. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're dealing with individual patients one at a time. They're not dealing with the big collective problems of health care. So there's a divide between the front office, which we call the C-suite, and the front line where the rank-and-file clinicians are. And those two groups don't see eye-to-eye, and they don't interact that much. And the front office just wields a lot more power than the front line. So can you talk a little bit about the different norms between physicians and the front line and the C-suite? Yeah, well, you know, it starts with this. I mean, physicians, I mean, you went, you and I went to college with uh, people who became physicians. They all major in science. And so these, these, and these are, they were the, when I went to college, uh, they were the smartest kids in the class. Whereas the people who went to business school, no offense, because I went to a business school too. I mean, we we weren't quite smart enough to major in science and go to medical school. We realized we weren't cut out for that. But you go to business school, and business school is just a two-year degree after college. And so you're not getting as much training. And then you're oriented less towards patient care and scientific advancement and more towards making money and economics and, you know, building bureaucracies and things like that. I mean, the huge social and cultural differences between these two parties, you know, it's like, uh, remember there was an old book, um, uh, women are from Venus, men are from Mars. I mean, that's basically what's going on between doctors and hospitals. You know, the, we have the same divide in academia. It's, it's the, the administrative apparatus of the universities versus the faculty. It's, it's almost the same thing. The administrative apparatus, they don't teach. They don't do research. You know, they're not dealing with students on a daily basis. But we, we're the front line of academia. We do. Okay, but we don't we just don't see things the same way and our interests are not aligned. Is there any good that comes of this? Uh, we've talked about all the, the, the bad that comes of it. Um, but I'm wondering, is there any little kernel of good that uh, is going on in amongst this? Yeah, well, I mentioned the positive things up front, but I think they they're fewer in number and less in scale of importance compared to the downsides. So if we're getting much higher costs, much higher prices, the same or less access, and in some degree lesser quality or lesser value in terms of what we're purchasing with more and more of these dollars, I think that's the, the bigger part of this. Uh, and, you know, you know, to 
some degree, you know, some some blame, if you want to talk about that, uh, belongs to the uh, antitrust agencies, both the federal and the state level, Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice at the federal level, states attorney generals at the state level. They need to be doing a lot more to uh, combat all this. Um, and, you know, the, their their success in serving as an effective check and balance on this has waxed and waned over time. I've worked with all of these agencies, all three of them. So have a lot of my colleagues, uh, David Dranoff in particular. Um, and so th- we've had some success, but not as much as we should have. And um, our book tries to end on a much more positive note, talking about what are the, you know, the, uh, the, the competitive responses we ought to have, as well as what are the managerial responses we ought to have. So we try to end on an, up, on, on an upbeat saying, here's what we ought to be focusing on going forward. But, you know, that takes a lot of, that's a lot of heavy lifting, especially on the managerial side. You know, what should we be doing on the inside? And so I've spent a lot of my time over the last few years uh, talking about what clinicians ought to be doing or can be doing to try to serve as a much, you know, better agent of change, a much better countervailing force. Um, and, you know, because physicians are the single most powerful actor in healthcare because directly or indirectly, they account for about 87% of all of this money that's spent in healthcare, but individually they feel powerless because they're atomized and they haven't organized the way these hospital systems are. And so it's one of these paradoxes. They're the single most powerful agent, and yet they feel like, you know, they're at the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, And so they're wondering what to do. So what would you tell them? Well, that's what that's what Chapter 11 is about. (laughs) uh, And Big Med. Now, we've we've got another book that just came out this past fall. It's called Seemed Like a Good Idea. Uh, and my my colleague Mark Pauly uh, is the lead author of that. I'm one of the uh, the follow-on authors of that. But one chapter in that book looks at vertical integration. That's where you have doctors and hospitals linked together. And we end that chapter talking about what doctors who are in these vertically integrated systems might do to have greater sway and greater influence and be more positive change agents inside these systems. And what we argue, I'll I'll distill it down to a nutshell, and that is if we want to focus on integration, we ought to do it within that facility. You know, integration within a facility. What would more integrated healthcare look like inside a single hospital? Rather than building these huge mega provider organizations across multiple hospitals in multiple states, which basically, you know, distracts you from doing all the hard work inside the hospital, down at the front line of care delivery, where all this stuff really needs to happen. So while the physicians who have run out and ordered your book (laughs) are waiting for Amazon or whomever to deliver it to their doorstep, what can they do tomorrow? Well, I think physicians are going to have to think about how can they make themselves a more powerful voice inside their own institution? Okay. Um, Now, there are a number of ways in which they could do that. You know, one of the most recent things I've seen, I'm not sure this is the right avenue to go, 
but I've, you know the the residents at the University of Pennsylvania's teaching hospital have now unionized. Now they're, they're better working conditions, higher pay. I'm not sure that's going to get us to the next level that we're talking about here. But that that's one of the uh, the standard ways. Well, we got to organize. Yeah, but then they think it's like a labor union mentality. It's not necessarily thinking about how do we change the system and right the ship and reverse some of these negative things going on to have greater voice in improving the quality, reducing the cost, and improving the service at the local level inside a hospital. That's going to take a lot of initiative and work by rank-and-file clinicians inside a facility who already feel that they're beleaguered and they're burnt out and they're 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 facing stagnant pay which they are i you know i feel for these folks and these are the as i said these are the smartest people in the healthcare system but they feel powerless and they feel they're under siege they're really under siege and so we're going to have to figure out ways to you know help those folks you know maybe that'll be my next book <laughs> rob thank you uh, so much for for what you're doing thank you for um the both the books you're writing, but also the ideas you bring to us. Um, as a frontline clinician, I, I, I am very refreshed to hear this, and I, I really appreciate all that you're doing, and, and thank you for joining us today. Well, look, I appreciate the, the opportunity. To, I, this isn't quite airing my grievances, but it's getting a lot of stuff off my chest, and that's basically what me and my colleagues are doing right now. We're getting a lot of stuff off our chest. Now, it might sound like a rant, to some people, especially to hospital executives, but what I tell them is it's an evidence-based rant. I mean, what we've concluded and what we printed, it's all evidence-based. And I'm waiting for some of these folks on the other side to challenge it with countervailing evidence that disproves it, but I haven't seen any. And so if, if they can't come up with better rationales for continuing to do what they do, perhaps they ought to consider some other avenues to take. In, in the paper we have coming out, we're also challenging the boards of these systems to step up to the plate and spend more time overseeing what their chief executives off, chief executive officers are doing. Now, the problem we face there, there are a lot of problems with our hospital boards. One is most of them aren't, are voluntary. You know, 75% of hospital boards don't pay the board members. Well, how much time are you going to get out of them? How much effort are you going to get out of them if you're not paying them? So one thing is pay them something. Maybe take some of the money away from these huge executive salaries and let's shuffle it over to the uh, members of the board. Secondly, the boards need to spend more time governing and overseeing what these hospital executives do. You'll be amazed. It's in our, the paper that's coming out. Just how little time a year boards spend meeting. They don't spend that much time in their quarterly meetings. And one of my colleagues in Chicago says, you know, a board only exists when it's meeting. You know, so if it's not meeting, it doesn't exist. And then uh, the, the board needs to hold the CEO's feet to the fire. And the board needs to have a much more honest dialogue and debate with their CEO about what their CEO is doing. That just does not happen. Now, that's not just particular to healthcare. That happens industry-wide. Boards and CEOs 
you know, they get along pretty well together, but that's because the boards aren't really challenging the CEOs. We need to have more activist boards and boards who are a little bit more skeptical about all the stuff that they may hear from the CEOs and then have a debate as to what's the right thing to do. Should we continue to build these systems or should we invest in the communities we're already in and do a better job of population health, you know, trying to change the social determinants of health, do a better job of engaging our clinicians on the front line to try to improve the quality and reduce the cost of care we're already delivering? That would be a step in the right direction. So I would also add that we need to think about how boards are constituted because that's the other challenge. You bet. You bet. Thank you. Rob, thank you so much. This was super. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks to both of you. So, Wendy, thank you so much for inviting Rob to speak to us. I think one of the things that I find most fascinating about this discussion was that so many of us who work in healthcare don't spend as much time as we probably should thinking about the really big picture, the macroeconomics related to what we're doing. Oh, for sure. I mean, when you start to talk to him and try to follow the expansiveness of what he was talking about and the interconnectedness across the country of all of these things that we think are just happening at our own little hospital, you start to realize how involved how intricate and complex healthcare really has gotten. No question. And how many different players are in the system? You know, when you think about an awful lot of industries, you think about the primary person involved in it, right? When you think about education, you think about teachers. When you think about the police force, you think about police officers. And I think a lot of us think about medicine the same way. When you think about medicine, you think about doctors and nurses and and, and allied health professionals, but you don't think about that absolutely mammoth part of it, which is the administrative side of it. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me is that we have spent the last 40 years trying to control costs in healthcare. And, and we haven't done a particularly good job. We haven't figured out how to do it yet. Um, we've got all these great theories, but as you and I have talked about, and as, as Rob mentioned, there's not a lot of evidence, and even the evidence that we do have is not all particularly good evidence yeah. for whether or not we should use particular management strategies. Like, there's no, there's no clinical trial for a management strategy. That, to me, that is one of the most fascinating uh, realizations, which is, I, I think when someone says it to you, you're like, oh, yeah, that's true. But you don't always think about it until someone says it to you, which is we hold ourselves to a pretty high standard in medicine for whether or not a drug is brought to market or whether or not a particular treatment works. And as Rob said, the evidence that a lot of people are using when it comes to decisions about consolidation and merging and you know different payment mechanisms is a case study. And that may be a very unique situation that may not apply to other folks. Yeah, exactly. I mean... You know, we had somebody say to us the other night, I'm part of this big system. And then acknowledged, oh, right. When you know one hospital in this system, you know one hospital in this system. Like you can't always yeah. generalize to the big picture. Yeah. I also thought some of his suggestions were pretty well aligned with what we talk about. So, yeah. you know, 
finding a way to become a more powerful voice in your institution? How do people come together with a collective voice, not necessarily a formally collective voice like a union, although in some places that is the route that folks are taking, but how do you come together and yeah. talk about what you need? Yeah. Again, thank you for, for bringing Robert along. I just thought uh, hearing from a professor of management on these kind of things really gives some uh, weight to it. And uh, for those people who haven't read Big Med, uh, just a superb commentary on what's going on. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. So thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. We're a grassroots organization, and your contributions will help keep these episodes coming. If any of the work we do is helpful to you, please give back if you can and make a donation at our website. While you're there, go to the podcast page for all the resources we mentioned in today's episode and browse through the pages and pages and pages of resources we've cataloged. You could keep yourself busy for months with the book list alone. And if you want a copy of the book, you can find it there too. You can also help by spreading the word and encouraging conversations. Share this episode with friends and colleagues or use the social media links in the show notes and tag us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks as always for listening. Stay well. Stay well.